One of the things that really sticks with me is the story of Kiribati and it's a story that we tell throughout the networks. To start off, where, where is this? So Kiribati, surround the Fiji region, north of Fiji. This is Joseph Sekulu. Joseph is from 350 Pacific, a grassroots network that works with communities to fight climate change from the Pacific Islands. Um, it's a tidy island, and on the island, there really is no point higher than about three metres. And they've been prone to king tides for a while, but because of climate change and because of the rising waters, that just becomes really exacerbated, so those king tides become a lot higher than what they used to be. King tides are essentially high tides, which is when water comes further inland. And there was one point where they were washing over, and the question was asked of our coordinator, what do you do when these king tides come? Because they've got nowhere to go. I mean, the highest level is three metres. You can't run from this. And he said that he'd take his family and his children into the living room. He'd take a long piece of rope and he'd tie them together so that if the waves came and washed them, it'd wash them away together. Tie, tie them to what? Tie them together. Just as Just he... tie them together, tie them to the pole. And the idea is that if one of them be washed away, then they would all be washed away together. <laughs> and end up wherever or, yeah. or just together yeah is that still kind of the mentality there like this is what we should do if something happens it's having to tie yourself together or tie yourself to something something stable like a tree that is not a new idea that is really how things work because when these king ties come you really don't have anywhere to run and the idea is to try and secure yourself to the land so that you don't float away or you're not washed away but tying your family together is something that's really personal to people and it's up to to the people to do that but maintaining that family structure is something that's really central and that's the reason why it's done In Tuvalu, one of the stories that we heard coming out was that... Tuvalu is another island in the Pacific Islands. During the cyclone, the storm surge will come up and it's not just taking away homes, it's washing away graves. And what they found was the families that had been buried there for centuries are being dug up and the skeletons are all over the place. And it goes into the water and then you've got all the animals feeding on this water. It's just this massive flow-on effect that takes forever for people to recover from this. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3. My name is Jake Morecambe. Today, climate change in conversation. It's a really it's a really hard one to try and explain because for a lot of people there is a lot of uncertainty of what's going to happen, but then there is also this feeling within the Pacific that they're not just going to stop by and watch things happen. In terms of the climate movement, the Pacific people are right at the forefront of that, trying to change that narrative. It's like, we're not drowning, we are fighting, we're going to get up and do something to save our homes. And and it's because they know that they've really got to do something about this now. And if we don't get up and share our stories, then the world is not going to hear and they're just going to continue down this path that we're on at the moment. Because the Pacific have really contributed nothing to, to carbon emissions and to climate change, and here they are at the forefront of things really feeling the impacts of climate change. and For people in the Pacific, when they hear 
I guess, you know, you've got your high order politicians or whatever saying, you know, it's it's all mythology that the climate change isn't really going on. Like we're not seeing it here. Yeah. How does that make them feel? It's frustrating. In Queensland, they've just gone ahead and granted like crisis level powers to the Adani mine so they can push that in as fast as they can. The Adani Carmichael mine has been a particularly hot discussion when it comes to Australia's coal industry. Coming from the International Energy Agency, coal is the single biggest contributor to climate change, making up 46% of global emissions. And if we want to keep average global warming below 2 degrees, over 80% of the world's coal reserves will need to stay in the ground. Australia's the biggest the biggest country in the Pacific and they're our closest neighbour and yet they still can't even hear the cry of the Pacific. It doesn't even matter to them. And that's something that's really frustrating to everybody. Even to the point where we're in like global organisations, people just aren't taking a country like Australia seriously as a, as a serious partner or as a serious ally. You go outside, like I was saying earlier, you go outside... We don't have floods, we don't have major environmental sort of impacts on our lives. I can walk to work, go into an air-conditioned building, almost not even remember that or, or think about the fact that we have these massive sort of environmental issues happening in parts of the world. In Sydney, in the middle of Sydney, we don't... Seeing as Australia is the Pacific's closest neighbour, I wanted to chat to some climate scientists and researchers here in Sydney. I wanted to know how they view Australia's stance on fighting climate change, but also how they feel about it when they put their research down, take off their academic hat and go home and reflect about what's happening. The first academic I spoke to is Dina Pham, a research director from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. Just being in Darlinghurst for the last eight years, I know I can't grow... Um, any food on my veranda which is facing west. When I first came, the first couple of years, the temperature and the heat in summer was fine. I could grow herbs, I could grow tomatoes. Now, facing west, eight years later, I can't grow that. It's so hot facing west on my veranda. So I can understand that things are changing because I can't do the things I used to as far as growing food in, in the middle of the city. But apart, but apart from that, I still can walk to work, I can still turn up to do my job every day. There's nothing stopping me from living the life I normally have. So I think what's going to happen is we'll have a hard landing. It'll be innovation by crisis. We'll have a collapse of our environmental systems and we'll have to change quickly. It's very hard for me to decipher the personal and the, the work. The second academic is Penelope Ajani, a phytoplankton research scientist from the University of Technology, Sydney. I mean, because I hear it at work all the time. But if you're asking me, do I go home and make changes in my life? I don't, really. I don't make a lot. I feel that that's more, and I don't know whether this is pushing the buck or whether I feel that it's more a bigger picture thing. We need to make decisions on a bigger level than me changing light globes or or putting the rubbish in three different bins or whatever. I think it needs to be on a much bigger, grander scale. But when we're talking big, I feel like a lot of people become disenfranchised because it's so big. Mm -hmm. 
do you think you do that? Do you think you remove yourself from what potentially might be down the road for us? Yeah, no, I guess I don't on a personal level because when I see the news and I see cyclones and hurricanes and things like that, I immediately pinpoint climate change to those kinds of things. And I think the general public probably don't. They probably think that's the one in 100 storm, 100-year storm or whatever. But, I mean, my immediate reaction is that's climate change. We are getting these things and we are going to get these events uh, more extreme and more regular. So I immediately think of that. And I do think of, you know, the displacement of people and the sea level rise. That does come to mind every time I see the news. In that way, I think about it all the time. Sea levels are rising and we can expect a lot more rain. That's the view of the CSIRO, the Bureau of Meteorology. They found that globally temperatures could rise... By you know, I was standing on the train station this morning and I read comments about, oh, the, 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 the Great Barrier is fine, no problem. And this is Brad Murray, a science lecturer. ...among scientists about what's actually happening and the problems that there are. And then you get these people who have no scientific training who are then making these sorts of broad comments, but they've got such a loud mouthpiece because they're on radio, they've been around for a long time, they've got all sorts of you know, connections. So the expression um, climate change scepticism to me is, is just, it's a name that's used to hide other intents. Right, so where do you think the scepticism term came from? Or why do you think people are sceptics? Well, well oh. <laughs> the term scepticism, I think if we think of it in a linguistic sense, it implies a level of careful thinking. So they've looked at the evidence and they're sceptical. People are sceptical about what they've seen. Whereas I think that the term has been adopted by people who don't actually do that. I don't think they've really carefully looked at the available evidence. We've got very smart people out there who are carefully looking at the evidence. Why would people use that as a moniker for other intents? Well, you know... That's, that's, that's a tricky one. One of the arguments that's used against people working on climate change and the realities of climate change is that it's the green lobby working to get more money for themselves. And, and you know, it's, it's really not about that. I know a lot of scientists, and I've been in this game for a long time, and I can't think of any, any of my colleagues or any of the scientists I know who are like, you know what, I'm doing climate change research because I'm going to make so much money from this. <laughs> right? I really don't see it. Whereas if you think about the climate change sceptics, I don't want to say too much, but you have a look at the sort of people who are, in general, I mean, I'm generalising here, the people who are pushing that point of view, and I think one has to be sceptical and one has to look carefully at what their interests are and why they're making these statements. Talking to academics Brad, Penelope and Dana, they all spoke with a real sense of urgency, of nervousness. Joseph from 350 Pacific shares this feeling, a nervousness that if countries like Australia don't act fast to fight climate change, his home country might be lost underwater. Climate scientists can make predictions of what events we will see more of in the future. But that doesn't make things any clearer. The outcome looks foggy, and and things may well play out not how we expect. It got me thinking, is this where that fear comes from? Not just a nervousness about climate change, but about the future. There have always been threats 
to humanity, whether this is environmental, whether this is because of some sort of health epidemic. What is it about climate change that really has people rattled? Well, I think it is, it is about our security and our, the threat to the very way of life that we have all trusted will just go on forever and that we'd have to make change and people don't like making change and they don't like uncertainty. This is Carol Ride. Carol is a psychologist and is also the convener for the not-for-profit group Psychology for a Safe Climate. Carol travels around to different community groups, opening up conversations around climate change. She asks questions like, how does climate change make you feel? Does it scare you? But also things like, why do you hold a resistance to climate change? And resistance, Carol says, isn't uncommon. Do you experience or do you see that people are scared to literally just bring that conversation out of their mouths? Yes, very, very much so. It's, it's extremely hard to get past, um, for anyone who raises the subject, they're often met with some a blocking response from other people because they just don't want to go there. And it takes, I think, some skill for the person who raises the subject to actually be able to really continue the conversation to try and get past the blocking that is the, the most common response. Um, and still sometimes people won't get anywhere. They'll get a sort of a rude response, a, a put-down, some hostility that causes the person who raises the subject to back off. But underneath it, it is because people are quite frightened by the impacts that they hear about. And also, if they're frightened and not engaging with it, it probably means they don't really go into the subject and learn about it more fully. They just get sort of snippets of news and they get also the counter snippets that tell people that it's not a problem, that it's, you know, a hoax, that it's dreamt up. People don't actually talk about how they really feel, even those who are climate activists. Why do you, th- um, why do you think climate change activists don't want to voice what they're feeling? They feel a bit ashamed of what they feel because they feel so worried or so pessimistic. I mean, the people I've met have just amazingly good citizens you know they're very good people who are very um responsible and caring so they'd be worried about impacting on other people in a negative way it's sort of like they know this problem and they get on with it and um, so they work in their whatever group they're in but they often don't talk about what's underneath for themselves and so giving them a chance to do that that can be very very helpful to them and so in a similar way for climate activists Let's just look at a hypothetical. What are you actually saying in this conversation? How how does the conversation play out? Well, look, it might be um, trying to understand the values that people in the community hold and realise that some people have more communitarian values and others have more individualistic values. You know, some of the solutions are working together with others, trying to spread the load equally among people, that will appeal to some people, whereas those who are more individualistic and maybe more hierarchical in their their values will perhaps not respond so well to that, but they actually want business engaged with the the problem in a way way in which there can be challenges that are taken up. It, It really is talking about the sort of different values people hold in the community and that we will respond differently to the messages depending on what sort of underlying values we have. 
Here is where things get tricky. Different people having different values means countries will obviously have different ways to deal with things. I wanted to ask Joseph about this, how he and his family, the people in the Pacific Islands, hold their values as a way to deal with the effects of climate change. How will they use them to process what's still to come? For Joseph, he does this in one major way. He turns to faith. Recently we had this um, campaign called Pray for Our Pacific and we went into that trying to engage church and faith communities just to be able to take a moment in their time to to say a prayer or to dedicate something small within their service to talking about climate change or climate change in that space and we were hoping to get around 40 or 50 churches registered to take part in this and we ended up with over 120 around the world and it's not really about going into somewhere and say, hey, we're going to talk about climate change or hey, we're going to spit out some science to you. It's really just about dedicating a prayer to those who are most affected by climate change because when you start with a small conversation then people start asking questions as to why you're doing this or where this comes from or and being able to use things like scripture or Bible passages just to demonstrate how important it is for us to look after the planet. People make that connection and then outside of that space they go and they start searching for the information and then that's where we come in to be able to assist that and develop that conversation. I remember reading about um, what the Pope had said in terms of his stance on climate change. So what, what exactly did he come out to say? So a whole novel was released, but the whole message behind it is that we are actually stewards of the place as, as a creation of God. We're not here to have dominion over everything. We're here to look after it because it was a gift to us and that's really what we should be doing. And that was his message about it is that people of this planet need to be better stewards of the earth and taking better care of it because the earth is going to be here a lot longer than we are and it should still be here for those who come after us. And why was that so significant in terms of um, reaching out to the Catholic faith? It's really big because churches are really the biggest organisations on the face of this planet and for the longest time there has been this traditionalist narrative around church that People will look at this waiting for Noah's Ark or they see what's happening with climate change and the changes as God's will and to have somebody like the Pope come out and just explain it in that way and to say, no, the planet is a gift from God. We need to take care, better care of it. We have to be better stewards. is a really powerful thing. And like I said before, if we want to engage the whole wide world in this conversation and the place to do that is within the church space because so many people on the planet go to church. If there were ever a more pressing time for Australia to really think about climate change, it's now. The UN Climate Change Conference in Marrakesh, otherwise known as COP22, wrapped up on Friday of this week. Australia announced last week at the conference that they would ratify their target from last year's summit in Paris, reducing emissions to 26 to 28% on 2005 levels by the year 2030. It's great that Australia has finally ratified, but with the current policies in place, we're still projected to fall short of our emissions reduction target. And even if we do miss that target, there are few legal ramifications. The interesting thing is that there are really no penalties for not meeting your nationally determined contributions. Uh, There was nothing agreed in Paris that was a penalty. This is Dr Ian McGregor from the UTS Business School. 
then why have a climate summit like COP if there are no penalties for not meeting your emissions reductions target? Because the 195 countries around the negotiations wouldn't agree to penalties to not meeting their emission reduction target. So so do we need to have COP then? Well, you could not have COP and not not have any mechanisms in the world to try and address climate change. Um, I mean, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is actually is now almost 25 years old. So it was opened for signing in 1992, came into force in 1993. The first COP was in Berlin in 1995. So we've been having, as a young woman from the Pacific Islands stood up uh, in Copenhagen and saying, you've been... Um, negotiating and having cuts in regard to this all my life, but you still haven't fixed the problem. And we still haven't fixed the problem, but to say we won't have any meetings of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, we'll just let everyone increase their emissions willy-nilly is probably a worse option than COPs that are, I agree, not terribly effective in terms of having a strong and binding agreement to reduce emissions. How can we do COP better then? How can we do COP better? Uh, I did write an article about five years ago saying that we needed, a, uh, as well as a, a UN Security Council, we needed a UN Climate Council where we had world's largest emitters as US and China and, and a sort of representing the least developed country group, the small island states, who really deal with this as a global emergency and come up with agreement in a, a smaller grouping that then was sort of accepted by the wider United Nations uh, to address that. But there hasn't been any uh, move in in that direction. We have people living in the Pacific Islands who are facing the brunt of climate change right now. They're yeah. losing their homes. They're calling to neighbouring countries like Australia to take this seriously, to to enforce emissions reductions target so that their countries can stay above water. What is it going to take for the world to take this seriously, for these councils, for these UN councils to form? Is it it literally just going to be, oh, well, when Australia is underwater or when the United States is underwater is when we'll start taking it seriously? Um, those countries don't have a lot of power. They work together, the small island development states, and um, Tuvalu is also an important negotiator in the least developed country group. But they, they can't force the US or China or Australia to reduce emissions because we have this whole global national sovereignty and you generally can't force other countries to do, to do things. The Pacific Islands are, are one thing. There's, there's 300,000 people in Kiribati. You can probably relocate them to Australia, and, and people in Kiribati would be very upset because they lost their culture and heritage. There's like 200 million people in Bangladesh, which is suffering from increased flow down the rivers due to glacier melt, rising sea levels, disappearing delta. Where are the 200 million people in Bangladesh going to go? Ian echoed what a lot of other people are saying in this space. Australia has the money and the means to switch things around before it's too late. A 100% renewable energy system, meaning no more opening up of coal mines, no more dirty energy, is possible. We could change the game. But like you heard earlier, a lot of people don't like change. And as Ian says, especially not the Australian fossil fuel lobby.
Joseph from 350 Pacific is frustrated. He's angry, he's nervous, he's speaking on behalf of hundreds of thousands of people in the Pacific Islands who feel the same way, who are experiencing some of the worst effects of climate change on the planet. But when I asked him this next question, I didn't fully expect the answer he gave. Are you optimistic? I am. There was always hope, and you find hope in some of the strangest places, and outside of this, I do a lot of work within our community space, just with kids' culture school out in Liverpool called Matavai, and they're a dance group, and when we have a protest or when we have a rally, the kids are there, and they come because they want to come, and that really gives me hope because these kids have never really been to the islands, but they hear the stories of what's happening, and that saddens them because they sit there and they think that if nothing changed, then they may never get a chance to go back to where they come from or experience that. And these kids who are between 10, 15, 16 years old are so vocal about this and they're there right at the forefront of our rallies and our protests. They really give me hope because I know that the younger generation are grasping this a lot more than the older ones do and they're really passionate about this and they really want to make a change. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of 2SCR and the University of Technology, Sydney. If you like the show, please subscribe to us. We're available on your favourite podcast app. We're on iTunes and also on SoundCloud. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next time. <laughs>